Hey everyone, it's Derek Stone and Conrad Geringer, and you're listening to the Working Triathlete Podcast. I've gotten a lot of questions on cycling cadence, and I think there are some misunderstandings about it, and uh, I think it's just good to, to talk about it a little bit, because it's an important part of uh, just form. Uh, cycling, there is technique and form to cycling, and when we go on group rides, I know that the the seasoned cyclists you can tell who they are they're just way more efficient their cadence is is more steady and they just know how to ride well and i think the most important part of form for triathletes it's cadence you know how smooth is the pedal stroke what is your cadence but really it's what i think we should talk about is you know the pedal revolutions per minute um and what it, it like means to be efficient, uh, have an efficient cadence. The main issue I see is, well, I guess there are two, but but a lot of athletes, especially newer triathletes, their cadence is just too low. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's there's a fundamental misunderstanding about j- just how to produce more power. Because, and I think part of the issue is erg mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times, so if you hop on your bike and you do erg mode, the slower you pedal, it, it just is the case that it feels like you end up working hard, but yep. you almost feel like you're cheating if you start pedaling faster because it just gets easier and you don't feel the resistance. So you don't feel that torque. And I think athletes don't realize that that's where you want to be. <laughs> you want to not really be feeling the resistance because it comes down to watts per pedal revolution. And that's kind of how to think about cadence. Just like, what is your ideal number of watts per pedal revolution at different power levels? Um, yeah. So one thing, uh, I get a lot of questions about that too. And I think there's a misunderstanding when it comes to even just shifting and it's understanding the gears and when to shift. I always use the example with athletes, like you can go 50 miles per hour in a vehicle in you know, fourth gear, or you, you could be in first gear. And obviously one of them is producing a lot more RPMs, um, a lot more torque. Um, and the other one you're you're already moving, it's in a different gear rate ratio. And a lot of people don't understand that. And when you're on the trainer in erg mode, you lose that that feel you lose the understanding of how to shift or when to shift to. And when you're racing or outside, you, you generally have to be shifting quite often as terrain varies and wind conditions change all the time. And obviously that that's going to impact your cadence and the power that you're producing. Exactly. And so that's the big thing. And that, that was one thing I wanted to talk about this concept of shifting just constantly outside so that you can achieve your theoretical ideal cadence and your ideal cadence is going to be a little bit different than maybe somebody else's ideal cadence. I mean, I I coach strong athletes who, you know, their average cadence during a 70.3 mid seventies. And I coach athletes who, you know, post the past fastest bike splits in their age group who are, literally put out 20 additional revolutions. So they're around 95, um, RPMs, but 
I do think it is the case that the biggest error I see with beginner triathletes or just poor cyclists, it's their cadence is too low. And one reason apart from just like the metabolic cost of that, or the, uh, it could potentially fatigue the muscles faster if, if you're pedaling at too low of a cadence. But the issue is if you're pedaling at too low of a cadence and the terrain, the elevation is undulating, or, you know, there are a lot of rollers. The problem is you, you can't really, if you're going up a hill, you're going to be way too low. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're pedaling at 95, okay, you're going up a hill, maybe you, know, you still shift into, you know, an easier gear, but maybe you just drop to, you know, 75 or something. And that's definitely going to be better than, <laughs> you know, pedaling at 65 RPM. And then all of a sudden you hit a hill and you're down to, you know, 35 or 40 RPMs. And then you're, you know, shifting after the fact and, and frantically trying to get back into the, the sweet spot. So, and, and we're kind of, seeing like at the grand tour level very few athletes are mashers nowadays everybody they tend to be like 90 and above uh and i think part of that is it's just easier to adapt efficiently to varying terrain if, if you're you're doing that um yeah. but you know i, I would say if we're just going to give a range i would say you know 75 to 95 is kind of a good range. I do know a lot of good athletes who are closer to 100 during sprint triathlons, but if you're above hundred, then we have to be, we have to question whether or not you are just, you, you might be losing energy just to turning over the pedals and losing efficiency just through the drive train. Yep. Um, but you know, we do know that at a given wattage pedaling at a higher cadence, is going to tax your cardiorespiratory system more. So you'll, you'll probably have a higher heart rate uh, if you're spinning compared to at a, you know, say, say you're 250 watts, 100 RPM, your heart rate is going to be higher than if you were putting out 250 watts at say 65 RPM. But, you know, we have to consider how just the, the, the watts per pedal revolution and how taxing that additional torque is on, on the muscles, um, not to mention that just the metabolic costs. I think there's, there's some evidence that pedaling at a lower cadence, even though your heart rate is lower, you're actually potentially burning more glycogen, uh, at a given speed or a given power output. Um, I don't know the actual numbers there, but it's, I've, I've definitely heard that quite a bit. So that's another consideration. Um, yeah, it's good to find like your natural selected cadence. And I think the easiest way to do this is if you're outside in a flat, you know, course or terrain with minimal wind condition, if you're doing a hard effort, you'll generally get around your natural cadence or natural selected cadence. I, I do find myself and in the athletes I coach, even just being indoors, it, it tends to be lower. And I don't know if that's mm-hmm. just a, a mental aspect or or what, you know, with or without erg mode. But, um, I know I do ride at a lower cadence indoors and sometimes purposely if I'm doing low cadence drills and things like that. But yeah, once you know that, like what you ride outside, it's better to train that indoors as well. That way, when you do get outside a race, you can hit those higher cadence numbers. 
Yeah, that that's that's an interesting phenomenon, and it's it definitely holds true for most athletes. They're going to have a lower cadence indoors versus outdoors, and I think part of that is just the natural response to changes in in road service and and elevation. I think it's just kind of more comfortable to be spinning at a higher cadence, and then there are there are fewer disruptions wherein you're you lose a lot of efficiency, kind of like what I talked about. If you're cruising at 70 RPM and then you hit a hill or even just like a little roller, it's, it's jarring. Uh, if you're putting out like, you know, all of a sudden 45 or 50. Um, but in training, we certainly want to spend time at the higher and lower ranges of cadence. There are benefits to, to riding at a low cadence in training. I mean, increases, power, uh, you know, enhances the force that, you know, you kind of put out your body just gets used to, to, to doing that. And there are certainly benefits, higher cadence. I think that that really enhances form and you can kind of work out the dead spots a little bit. If you, uh, you know, do some, some high cadence work, you just increase the range at which you're, you're comfortable and can kind of function, uh, well. So, and also when you're riding, no matter what, you're going to end up having spurts in a race where you are going to be pedaling at low cadence. You know, if you, if you have a 15% uh, grade that you have to get up, it doesn't matter, you know, what, what your gearing is, you're going to be pedaling at a low cadence to get up that thing. Um, so it's, it's something to think about. And, and one other factor is crank length. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going a lot of athletes, especially time trialists, triathletes, we're selecting shorter crank lengths. So it's reasonable to have a higher cadence. And in many cases, you have to have a higher cadence to, to put out you know, the power. Um, so it's it, it. But again, in general, if you're in that like 75 to 95 RPM range, I wouldn't overthink it too much. Um, Personally, I think it's productive to be a little bit higher than 75, you know, like 80 to 95 in, in my mind is, is where most of the strong athletes I work with fall. Yeah. Another con- consideration too, is even just the gearing ratio. So if, if you're not a strong athlete, you know, getting a compact crank, you know, like something like a, uh, 50, 36 and chain rings in the front, or, you know, adjusting the cassette in the back to have a bigger range as well can can help get you to the optimal cadence uh if you're a stronger athlete or if it's a flat course having a bigger chain ring in the front like a 54 or 55 can be really beneficial on flat courses but really just knowing the courses you're going to race and having um different cassettes or if you have the ability to get different crank or, or chain ring to, to swap out for different races will help a lot too yeah definitely it's it's simple to swap out a cassette uh, you know, the day before a race and, and you should know how to do that. It's, it's, it's not risky, you know, swapping your tube and tire, probably a little bit more risky than, you know, throwing on a different cassette. Um, but the other part of this is you really do need to just ride outside a lot more mm-hmm. to, uh, to really, I think, hone in on your ideal cadence and to, get in that, that good 
range for, for any given athlete. Like, they, they have to know how to shift well. And I've seen athletes, you know, a couple in my mind right now, sort of at local athletes who uh, an initiative that, that we had was to just ride outside more this, this season and, and even over the winter on mild days. And uh, they've improved their, their bike handling skills dramatically. But part of bike handling, bike handling is not just going around turns and, you know, knowing how to draft well or, or just being comfortable you know, riding with no hands or, or pulling the water bottles from the different cages. It's part of bike handling is just knowing when to shift, how to shift, or not even knowing when, just doing it subconsciously. Uh, the, the the best athletes, they're shifting nonstop. It's just, mm -hmm. it's all the time, like every few seconds. I know that, you know, when I wish that, so I actually don't run electronic shifting and maybe we can talk about electronic shifting because... I'm starting to hate it for a lot of reasons, but uh, uh, I still think it's fine to, to use. But you know, the I know a lot. Certain uh, one metric is how many times you shift during a race, and I, I would be interested in seeing you know how many times top cyclist shifts versus you know mid pack or back of the pack. I have a feeling that the best cyclists are shifting more. Yeah, I think you're right. And when I tell athletes to when they're holding, like I give them a top part, like a target power number. And I said, live within the range of your cadence and shift to match that, you know? Yeah. So you're not trying to match the power and slow down the cadence. You want to shift to match the cadence and the power essentially. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's the key there. Um, but you know, when it comes to ways to shift, to, to optimize cadence, you know, obviously we have, uh, Mechanical shifting, which is traditional, you know, you have the cables and you shift with the levers and then electronic shifting, um, ETAP or DI2. And those are, uh, I think they certainly make shifting easier, but man, I got to tell you, I don't know what it is about like the last six months, but so many athletes are having issues <laughs> I, I, if they're just forgetting to, uh, whether it's forgetting to charge their electronic shifting or just the shifting croaking. So, you know, the last two weeks, so one athlete who did a local triathlon, Old Hickory, his uh, electronic shifting just it stopped working uh, the, the week before the race. And then he went to multiple bike shops, tried to get it fixed. Uh, and he couldn't find a solution. So he had to, he rode Old Hickory triathlon with, with one gear. Oh boy. Literally just, just one, just one gear. <laughs> you take one gear. Not even like, it wasn't just the rear cassette or, or the front, you know, ship. It wasn't there, just one derailed. It was both of them just weren't working. So uh, that's not good. And then another athlete I work with who uh, did 70.3 Hawaii, who had a great race, qualified for the world champs. He, uh, he got to Hawaii and his electronic shifting and wouldn't charge and it just wasn't working. So frantically, you know, he was able to get to a bike shop. They were able to fix it in time. You know, whereas if you had mechanical shifting, uh, it, you want to, you never have to worry about it. So I'm still a dinosaur. I run a one by, I'm talking about my triathlon bike. I run a one by and uh, just mechanical shifting. So it's just one lever. So it's, I think probably the benefits of electronic shifting are, are less if you're running a one by regardless, but you know, I'm not giving that up anytime soon. Uh, but 
you know, it's kind of silly, but you run what? Yeah. DI2? So I have, I have a SRAM axis on my tri bike and DI2 on my road bike. And I have a one by on my tri bike. And I actually had an issue at Chattanooga as well. Um, I would call it actually a user error it, with SRAM. There's a blip box where the blips that you use to shift uh, was in my cal pack of my bike and it rained overnight. <laughs> and recently I put on two wireless blips, which opened up two ports, the blip box. And I think water got into the port and it killed the blip box. So I couldn't use two shifters and it went, it didn't pair right away. So when I was at Chattanooga, I eventually got the, the wireless blips to pair to my derailleur and it was fine. But now, you know, I I'm still out of blip box because there's no parts anywhere. <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. but I can still shift now. I, I I've paired it indefinitely with my wireless blips. So I, I just jump on once the derailleur shakes or vibrates, you know, it wakes it up and then my wireless blips shift. Um, so yeah, I, I would say though, the, I've had very little issues with, with wireless shifting. I mean, I, I you do see people with issues with mechanical as well. You know, I think more so it's wear and tear, you know, and, and longevity or the lifespan of, of certain things. So, you know, get things checked up, no matter if it's wireless or mechanical, you know, get things checked out because with, mm -hmm. with mechanical, you have a cable and if that cable frays or, you know, it's old and, and there's corrosion, um, that could end a race as well. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about maintenance and, you know, I mean, you mentioned user error and yeah, that's true, but there, it's, it's also the case that making certain gear selections, it just introduces more opportunities for user error. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, maybe being honest with yourself, like how important is this? Am I going to actually go through the maintenance to, you know, make sure everything is, is running well, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to say electronic shifting is, is stupid. I mean, it's much more enjoyable <laughs> than mechanical shifting for many reasons. It's just smoother, easier to shift, you know, more satisfying. It's just immediate. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely less satisfying to shift with, you know, mechanical uh, just system. But, um, you know, with, with the one by, I don't really, I'm, I never think about it on the, the TT bike. So I'm not in a hurry to switch that to electronic shifting, but you know, for the road bike, it is, it is a little bit different. Like I'm a, electronic shifting makes more sense on a road bike. Cause typically you ride that in more technical terrain and it's just a different, it, it, it kind of serves a different purpose and similar thinking about disc brakes. Uh, I don't run disc brakes on my time trial bike and I will go as long as I possibly can to not run disc brakes, but on my road bike, like I couldn't imagine not having disc brakes mm -hmm. right now. It's just, there's so much, it's so much easier to stop so much more enjoyable. You, you're so much more confident. One issue though, is the brake rub is it's common. I yep. mean, at, at nationals, uh, we had two road bikes. So Miguel's bike and then, I, and then my bike. So I let Anthony use, use my road bike, my uh, specialized sprint, LA disc brakes. And, um, Miguel was borrowing uh, Patrick's Canyon top of the line bike. And there were, there's this brake rub the morning of, and there wasn't brake rub earlier on. And we were just frantically trying to fix it. And we ended up fixing it. 
on, on both of the bikes, but I mean, it was close, especially with Miguel's bike. I mean, it was literally like we transported the bike from our Airbnb to the race site at Irving and we were spinning the front wheel and it was just, it would just stop. And we actually took it to the, uh, the tri-bike transport guys to see if they had, you know, quick solution. Cause you know, we tried the typical methods and it didn't, it didn't work and and they couldn't really work on it for insurance liabilities but you know they mentioned some things that we could possibly try and but uh you know at, at the end of the day we just kind of had to push the metal um the brake like the you know the the, the rotor the rotor yeah and we just had to kind of bend it into place and then it could spin freely so it must have gotten a little bit knocked or slightly slightly bent somehow but like micrometers like not visible to the, the naked eye but if that happens in a race that that's not a good thing and I, I remember even when they first came out uh you know three or four years ago on triathlon bikes and the pros started to use them i heard a few pros say that you know they, they did races and i think was it hoffman i want to say ben hoffman in one of the interviews i listened to him like literally probably four years ago he's like yeah the disc brake my brake was rubbing the, the whole time i realize now um during the race because it's just the the brake pads are so close to that rotor in a disc brake bike so it's got to pay attention to it yep so one thing i do want to go back to the the mechanical and electronic shifting real quick and the one thing i'll say about with the benefit of electronic shifting is if you have shifting on the bullhorns you can shift going in the turns out of turns and obviously up steep climbs as well. So there's the opportunity to shift a little bit more frequently. Um, and then yeah, talk to your point about disc brakes there, the more advancement we get with anything, there's always going to be more challenges. And, and like you said, there are more opportunities for user error. I even think about like vehicles, for, for example, you know, there's, there's more parts to vehicles, there's more chips, there's more cameras. So there's more opportunities for things to go wrong. Same with our bikes. So you know, just understanding and knowing it is super important. Um, but yeah, having, having the, the advancements can be good, but again, like you mentioned, if you are running the mechanical shifting, you know, you can get by just fine without it too. Yeah. I mean, your point is, is definitely valid and that, that's, it's a good one. This concept of when we think about performance gains, you know, I, I would always say that electronic shifting is not going to make you faster, but mm -hmm. I suppose in a time trial situation, if it's a technical course and there are a lot of turns and you need to shift a lot while sitting up, that, that that's a good point. Uh, that's one, I think, argument for electronic shifting actually enhancing performance, but otherwise I don't, I really don't think it's, it's going to enhance it. And when we think about most of the courses that triathletes ride on, they're not like uber technical i don't think it'll make a huge difference um you know certainly if you you have the extra funds and enjoy electronic shifting go, go for it but uh you know it's when we think about advancements in cycling and uh well any hobby or, or anything just related to technology it's it's like i get the sense that a lot of r d people or cycling companies like they just have to change things just to get athletes purchasing new items. Uh, and at a certain point, the 
so-called advancements just aren't even really advancements anymore. Um, I don't know. Certain things flop like certain, just because a bike looks weird doesn't mean it's going to test faster mm-hmm. <laughs> in the wind tunnel, like the diamondback Andean, you know, I don't know. I think that tests pretty well in the wind tunnel, but it was just radical and, you know, they launched it and it's cool that they launched it. It's an interesting looking bike definitely did not really catch on. And I don't see many of them out there, but, uh, it's, I don't think it was, if it was truly better, I think everybody would be riding a mm-hmm. bike that kind of looked like the Andean. Um, so I don't know. I'm trying to think of other products that, that came out that, you know, we, we kind of question whether or not this is truly an advancement or just some type of zany creative, just new approach. Um, yeah, you can only recreate the wheel so many times. Yeah. Um, one other mention I wanted to talk about with electronic shifting is athletes shouldn't understand like synchro shifting. If they have a, a two by in the front and they're shifting, I've had athletes that would drop their chain because they don't know when it's going to shift. So mm-hmm. for the listeners, synchro shifting is when the chain ring from or the chain from the big chain ring to the little chain ring drops. And then in the rear cassette, it'll jump to sometimes three uh, gears, depending on how you set it up. And when that happens, there obviously the chain's moving a lot. There's an opportunity for it to drop. So you have to slightly let off the torque. That way the chain drops precisely. Um, otherwise, you can drop a chain and that can cause a, a disaster during a race as well. But just understanding that and how it works and when it's going to happen is super important too. So if you have if you have electronic shifting, knowing when that's going to happen, if you have it set up that way, can be really beneficial. Um, it's, it is kind of a pain in the butt. I did not like it on my tri bike at all because it would just jump around. And, mm-hmm. and like I said, like it's moving from one chain ring to the other, and then it's jumping two to three different gears in the back. So there is a delay that you can put out power for, for a moment there too. Yeah. Good, good point. And, and part of it is you gotta, you just gotta get outside and ride mm-hmm. your bike. Um, indoor training, obviously best bang for your buck, super efficient, just really great for building fitness, but you know, we can't neglect this, this concept of just getting out there, riding, learning how to handle your bike, becoming one with the bike, just doing everything, just getting in the flow. It's all about getting in the flow on the bike and just knowing when to, when to shift and, you know, a good cyclist when, when you see one, um, I know whenever we're riding sort of in a pack, uh, with a bunch of working triathletes, you know, I think of like Marshall, like Marshall Martin, he's, he's, he was a pro one, two cyclist and really, really good, uh, bike handling. And if I'm in the back of the pack, looking up, you know, just looking at him riding in the TT position, there's just no race, no wasted movement. His hips mm-hmm. are not rocking back and forth. It's just it. And then compare that to, you know, a newer cyclist or somebody less comfortable on the bike or whose bike position is not dialed in. They just look a little bit more uncomfortable, inefficient hips, rocking back and forth. Uh, you know, and part of this is, is how athletes can just go faster on the same number of Watts as, as other athletes. Um, even if they weigh the same and their CDA might, might even be similar. So, so they're as aerodynamic as somebody else. Um, it's bike handling, knowing when to apply power, knowing 
just how to get the most out of your pedal stroke because it it matters absolutely um but you know one other thing that i thought would be productive to talk about today was uh errors or maybe opportunities for improvement for you know athletes when they're racing so i'm talking about specifically a race that happened this past weekend so locally we had the old hickory triathlon um just north of of nashville and we had a number of athletes show up and compete we uh we actually had athletes uh well we won the overall male and female uh races so we had athletes who finished first overall in, in both uh genders and so it was it was a good day we had a bunch of athletes you know in the top five top 10 bunch of age group winners so you know it was fun and it's that's a really cool local triathlon beautiful venue on old hickory lake it's just sort of a cool kind of grassroots uh race the the police show up in in full force to that like the hendersonville police i've never seen so many cops at like a little sprint try and and they're all it's i think they just like coming out and uh you know they're all nice and it's just like a good community sort of type uh race and it's a big deal in hendersonville so uh but i spectated and, and coached and it was driving me nuts how not necessarily the working triathletes although you know there are a few who can work on this but transitions so, so number one pet peeve of mine that I've sort of developed over the last year or two is just athletes losing time in transition. Um, and I would say that that was the number one area that sort of working to athletes or, or just a lot of the athletes who did the race can improve upon. Um, Were they like, taking their time? Or, they're taking or just, their time. Yeah. They, it, there's just no excuse for it. Like if you train your butt off, and you show up at a race and you you want to do well if you you're showing up at a race you should want to do well mm -hmm. you should want to maximize your performance just out of principle you know and sure you you could show up and and if you're going to work hard at all in the swim bike and run for whatever reason you should also work hard in transition <laughs> and it was just there was a lot of room for for improvement there uh specifically just running so, so basically every part just running out of the the body of water like you should be running there's no reason to be walking um you know unless you have a heart condition or something like it, it's part of the race and then once athletes get to their bike like it it can be so much simpler than athletes make it like they show up to their bike and like they forget what to do <laughs> like they, they don't know the order of, of things and uh, they just kind of take their, their time. And, and, and part of this is we're tired when we're coming out of the swim, right? We're dizzy. Heart rate is skyrocketing. So it's almost like, okay, well, I'm just going to try to catch my breath a little bit. But then you get that mentality in your brain. You lose a minute. You lose 90 seconds. You lose two minutes easily without realizing it. Um, and I think part of it is just, you know, we don't, we think of triathlon as swim, bike, run. And it's almost like the, the, the transitions don't count. Like I want to look at my bike split and, and, you know, I look at my swim, 
split, bike split, run split. And, you know, that's the greatest uh, indicator of fitness, like, and performance. But, but it's not like you have to do transitions quickly. And it's just one of those things, like, how you do anything is how you do everything. So just nail your transitions, practice, um, etc. And, you know, I know for a fact, I, I know that you and I have a little bit different of a perspective on that, or maybe not a different perspective, but, you know, I'm a big advocate of clipping in your shoes to the pedals because um, you can just grab your bike and go. And the key is just getting on your bike and going. Uh, but I wanted to talk about this concept a little bit because there's actually a lot to talk about there. But uh, so, you know, putting on your cycling shoes before you get on your bike or after you get on your bike, like what are your thoughts there? Yeah. So I think it really depends on the comfort level of each athlete and one, you do need to practice it. And in my opinion, it does probably matter more in sprints than Olympics. I am very efficient at putting my shoes on and then running the bike out to the mount line and just stepping on the pedal and going. Um, I don't know if my time would be any faster either way. Um, there, I could probably do an analysis and, and see the difference, but I bet it'd be pretty trivial. Um, obviously I think in any draft legal race, it matters a lot because if it's one to two seconds, you lose, that's quite a bit of time. And, and that's the difference of missing a pack. Um, you know, I know some of that, like Andy, for example, who won the men's race, I told him, I said, no matter what you do, just get on your bike as fast as you can. Cause I, he's a strong swimmer. And I just told him you can always recover when you get on the bike. But, um, you know, as new athletes though, and, and he's relatively new to the sport too. I said, just be comfortable with what you're going to do. Cause you don't want to do something that you're not comfortable with and make mistakes too at the, uh, at the mount line either, um, or slip off your bike. But it's a, it's interesting. You asked this question because I was looking at some articles or, or some threads on slow Twitch and there was one about mistakes being made. And, and someone talked about how they clipped in their shoes to the bike and they clipped it into the wrong pedal. So, no way. so oh, their shoes were flip flop. <laughs> and do that? yeah, <laughs> you think you'd notice right away, like when you do it, you know, but apparently you don't. Um, but that's one thing that I know as we approach multi-sport nationals, I'm going to have to, to practice a little bit more because I'll need mm -hmm. to be pretty proficient at, at doing that. It's just one thing, you know, I generally race long course events for the most part. Well, I guess, I guess it's 50, 50, but um, I'm pretty comfortable with, with slipping my shoes on and running to the mount line, but it, I think it really just depends on each athlete and, and their comfort level too. And also the surface that you're on, because if, if it's grass and you're not going to slip on the, on the cleats, you might be okay. But if also if it's muddy though, and you get mud stuck in the cleats, you might not be able to clip in. So there is an analysis there that you need to make as well. Yeah. I mean, the, I just remember one point specifically when I was standing next to the transition area and somebody was, they put their shoes on and then they had a boa, uh, they, they tied it with a boa. And I just heard click, 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 click for like 10 to 15 seconds. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that that's like 15 seconds of, of tightening one of your boas. It's, it, it was just, driving me nuts a little bit and you know i understand everybody has different goals and you know this person maybe didn't care about time at all and, and there's something to be said for that you know showing up at a race having fun just enjoying it everybody has the right to do that but uh 
for performance oriented individuals, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta dial those things in. And, um, but yes, you bring up a good point about proficiency and, and, and confidence. I know for a fact, you know, a lot of newer athletes, they should not be, they should not clip in their shoes to their pedals beforehand. Um, because just getting the water bottle out of the bottle holder between their legs is, you know, terrifying enough for them. So that, that's a no brainer, but you know, it, it is just going to be substantially faster. If you, if you clip your shoes in, you know, practice it, it doesn't take a whole lot of time to learn how to do it. Um, but I also don't want to make assumptions. Like, you know, I, I grew up cycling since I was a little kid, like every day, like literally throughout high school, middle school, high school, or like elementary, middle and high school, I would ride my bike literally everywhere. And so I sort of, I think, take it for granted mm-hmm. how competent one should be naturally on the bike. You know, how difficult is it to balance on a bike? How difficult is it to reach down? So I know for a fact that some athletes just don't have that, that comfort uh, and it takes a while. And it's just like swimming. Like you, you swam your whole life, you're going to be at an advantage over people who didn't. And, and cycling, I think, is, is similar. Um, however, I do believe that you can, you know, learn how to, uh, slide your feet in. But but one other thing that I wanted to talk about in this vein was shoe choice, because there are definitely shoes that are easier to slide your feet into and, uh, you know, tighten or many shoes you don't have to tighten uh, mm-hmm. that I think are are just better. And, and athletes should consider that probably when selecting whether or not to, you know, clip in first or put on their shoes before they get on the bike. Um, so I run the, the gyro empire SLXs and I cut out the tongue and I put the flat elastic bands on there. So there's no tightening to be done. It's literally, you just shove your foot in and go. And, you know, I'm a huge advocate of it. Uh, they're the most aerodynamic shoes measured in the wind tunnel. Wiggins rode in them when he broke the hour record, uh, a few years ago. So, you know, that they did a lot of testing, um, and one reason maybe some people don't like that approach is, you know, on the upstroke, if you put a lot of pressure on the upstroke, you know, your foot isn't going to be super securely fastened in there. Uh, so you can't really get the shoes tight, but if you're putting any pressure on the top of the shoe on the upstroke, you're not riding efficiently anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, you know, that, that argument is, it might be valid for certain athletes who don't really have a smooth, efficient pedal stroke. Uh, and, you know, I certainly would not race a crit in these, but for time trials, when you're putting out steady, efficient power, you know, I think that you know, they're my favorite. I've had four pairs of them. Um, so, and I will, I haven't found a better alternative yet. So that's, that's one thing to think about as well. Like, it can be difficult to get your foot in, uh, to certain shoes. Yeah. So to Conrad's point, I have the, uh, Louis Garneau signature 84, which I don't believe they make anymore, but they were a lace up mm-hmm. shoe. And I did the same thing. I cut out the tongue and just put the elastic band with laces in there and I can easily slide my foot in there, um, easily get it out. But like you mentioned, if you are like, if I'm on a training ride, I'll notice if I get up out of the saddle, but generally I'm not doing that in a, in a race anyway. Um, if you are going to race like a, a road race or a crit, yeah, you want to 
a shoe that's going to be secure or your foot secure in the shoe. Um, but yeah, to get in and out of it, it's super easy. And that's why I mentioned, you know, I don't clip mine in because I can just slide my foot right into the shoe, run my bike mm-hmm. from outline, step in and I'm good to go. And then I, when I dismount, same thing, like I just slide my foot out, you know, a hundred meters before the dismount line and put my foot on top of the shoe and I step right off my bike and I'm good to go. So when we think about the analysis of clipping your shoes in first or, or sliding them in, we have to think about, okay, like what, what, what exactly is the time that you're giving up? So if you clip them in, you know, you, you go in transition, you just literally grab your bike and go, and then you, you, you hop on your bike and you can immediately start pedaling. Then you get up to speed. So you're already moving and then you slide your feet in. So the, the time that you give up, if you put your shoes on in transition, that includes just putting your feet in your shoes when you're standing there. Cause you could be doing that when you're uh, flying down the road on the bike. And the other question is, are you giving up time by running in your cycling shoes? Well, maybe, maybe that depends. Maybe, maybe not, but you're, you're also giving up time clipping in because, and that can vary between, you know, athlete to athlete. I mean, people can do these steps more efficiently than others, but another big time suck is, you know, when you throw your leg over the the saddle and, and press down, like if you're wearing your cycling shoes, you know, you have to clip in and and that can take a decent amount of time. Um, You know, that could easily take probably 10 seconds, but you know, when, if you clip in, if you use just rubber bands to secure your shoes, you can just throw your leg over and then stomp down. So mm-hmm. you're not, you're not only are you saving time by not putting your shoes on, uh, when you're just standing there, but you can also get going faster. Um, you know, so th- those are things to think about, but you have to do each of those steps well to, I think, save time. Um, you, but, you may have convinced me to, to do that this weekend. I'll, I'll do the analysis when I race. Yeah, I, I, we could do that. We could just get a bunch of athletes and uh, you'd have to do something like have a little transition area and then have a line like a hundred yards away or something. Yeah. Uh, and see how much faster it is, you know, five, five tests of each, uh, you know, what's, how much time do you actually save? Um, but you know, I do like the rubber band approach. You know, I throw my right leg over. So you want that shoe parallel with the hole up top secure. And then you throw your leg over. You can literally, when you stomp down, like you can literally just slide your foot in immediately and then stomp down. Mm-hmm. So then you put on that shoe and you're stomping down. So th- these are the little, I think, hacks or secrets to have a faster transition. Another side note, but, but similar when you are taking your bike out of transition for that bike leg, having your bike in appropriate gear to start off is important yes. as well. Um, I, I saw a couple of videos of athletes that they're probably in a gear that was too big and they were mashing right out of T1. And, uh, so it's good to, to know what, what's an appropriate gear. And, and that way, when you step on your pedals, you can quickly you know, get into your shoes or, or clip in, because if you're in a, a gear that's too heavy, you might have to stop and, um, readjust before you get on it again. Yeah, that is a great point. Uh, a lot of athletes, pretty much everybody, honestly, 
coming out of transition at Old Hickory, they're, uh, they're in too large of a gear. Part of the issue was for the transition area, um, so, so you had the transition area and then you had bike out and there was like a, a, an incline, like a subtle incline that's probably 25 meters or so. And the mount line was right when you exited transition. And at first the volunteers were like, mount, mount right past the line, mount right past the line. And then athletes were doing that, but then they had to get up a hill and they just couldn't, especially mm -hmm. if they had to clip in actually. Um, and then later on, they realized like halfway through, you know, everybody going through T1, they're like, oh, we should probably move the mount line up, you know, to the top of the hill. Cause there's actually a hill and then a 90 degree turn that was just like flat land. So certain athletes were just running their bikes up to that 90 degree turn, which probably was the best way to do it honestly just the way that that was set up um because nobody was cycling up that little hill quickly um so next year i'm sure the race organizers will make sure that that mount line is up you know at the top of the hill right mm -hmm. at the 90 degree turn and the other issue they had was when cyclists were, were coming back they had the dismount line past the 90 degree turn so, so the, the cyclists came in right next to transition, you know, the 30 yards from transition, they had to do a 90 degree turn, go another, like, I don't know, 10 meters and then dismount. Like they definitely should have had. And one other issue is on that 90 degree turn, you had runners running on the other side of the road. So you had, it was just a little bit chaotic, but they can remedy this just by making the mount line at the top of the hill, right after the 90 degree turn. Mm -hmm. So anyway, point being, if you're looking for a takeaway here, know where the mount line is and know if there's an incline, you know, you need to make sure you're in a good gear. Yep. Yeah. So, so a couple other things, I guess we can talk about mistakes being made and, and I'll use a personal example of myself. Yeah. I raced two weekends ago at Grand Rapids try and I looked at the course maps and the course is straightforward. I mean, it was an out and back on the bike and an out and back on the run, but I missed the one turn on the, on the bike. And, uh, partly because th there was a cop waving a vehicle to turn left. And it, it, it was, a, it appeared that he was waving me to go through as well. And when, in reality, I had to turn left to where the car was turning from. And on the run, um, there was a path that paralleled the road and we were supposed to run down the road and I ran down the path. And when I got to like a half mile into the path, I saw a timing map, which I stopped there for, you know, 15 seconds to gather my thoughts and understand where I needed to go. And I had no idea. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and so long story short, I look back and I, I finally see another competitor on the road and he's like, go straight on the road. And, and that's what I did. So that timing map was for the half distance. And I just, you know, was paralleled to the course and and lost a little bit of time there. But so the point being is always know the course. And this is, this might be hard for like long course races because it's hard to know every turn, twist and turn. Um, but generally Ironman races have well-marked courses. Um, you know, if it's a, if it's a local race, you know, a grassroots race, there could be less markings on the road or, or turns. So mm -hmm. just know where you need to go. I know, same thing. I, it's funny you mentioned the the mountain dismount line. I remember when we did Dixie try a few years ago, I didn't know where the mountain line was. And oh, there was yeah. that big hill <laughs> out of transition. 
And there's that they said go up the hill. And and I interpreted that was the mountain lions at the top of the hill. So I was running my bike up the top of the hill, which I lost a bunch of time doing that. And so knowing the course is super important. It's it's one of those things we need to do as an athlete. And it's our it it's our responsibility to know it and you know and understand where we need to go. Um, because volunteers are always gonna be out there, but sometimes they don't even know where the course is. They're just out there pointing their fingers. A shockingly large number of times they don't know. It was it was crazy. Um yeah, Duathlon Nationals, like May 1st or late April, whenever that was. The uh I was riding and it was like the first 90 degree turn, and there were like arrows sort of showing that I should go go left and you know I, I thought I was supposed to but then there was a woman who was telling me to go right like pointing to the right and I'm like wait what am I missing like some roundabout or something or it was like confusing so as as I was approaching like there were cops there also and I was like wait which way which way which way and they're like follow the arrows right and I'm like yes, I know, follow the arrows, but there's literally a volunteer screaming at me and pointing the opposite way. So that kind of, it was a bit rattling, but uh, like I thought I had to go left. So I, I did, so it was fine. But point being, the volunteers oftentimes show up on race morning and they've never volunteered at a race. They have no idea what they're doing. So uh, do your DD, do your due diligence. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, course, knowing the course is super important. Um, also knowing the rules, you know, most seasoned athletes understand the rules quite a bit, but I, I think it's just important to kind of touch on this briefly that way, you know, cause it's a mistake people can make. And I think the biggest one that, that I would assume a lot of people don't understand is, is the blocking rule. So if people are riding to the left too long, um, after they make a pass or if they're just in the middle of the road, uh, that could result in a penalty. And generally it's a two minute penalty on like a USAT sanctioned event. Mm -hmm. And, uh, sometimes, you know, it, it's good to ride a little left depending on the road conditions, but you got to be aware of your surroundings and be reasonable with it as well. But if you're out there and you're, you know, I always use the example and I tell my athletes this too. I'm like, you know, when you're on a highway or on an expressway on the interstate, you know, you, you, if you're going to ride slow, ride in the right lane, when you're passing, go in the left lane and that's the flow of traffic. Right. And that should be the same with, with cycling as well. That way there's no hiccups and, uh, always be vigilant out there too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Knowing the rules is, is important and screaming on your left endlessly is, uh, is important. It's kind of funny. I was running, uh, a music city triathlon a few weeks ago and, uh, I embarked on, on the run and, you know, I was doing the Olympic distance race. It's it's, which ends up being, you basically go out and back out and back as a 5k. So you, you basically do two loops, just two out and back loops on the run. And this, a lot of sprint athletes were, were still out there. I mean, hundreds of them. So, uh, but you know, and, and we're running and it was, it was funny because you can't say, especially if you're running, you can't say passing or passing on your left, on your left, because at a certain point you have to breathe, you mm -hmm. know? And there's this, a woman who, uh, you know, I, I was like, it was right before the first turnaround. So 1.2 miles in, and I was just like, you know, she was running sort of 
like next to, to somebody else. And they were kind of taking up the, the whole path. And, you know, I just ran between them. I didn't even touch. I didn't even think anything of it. Like I just went right in between them and kept running. Like I was feet between them, uh, like either of them. And she was like on your left. And I was just like running and I was just like, okay, I don't need to get worked up right now and, and, and waste any, any energy uh, because I'm not going to be saying on your left, if I'm running as hard as I can, you know, trying to, to, uh, to crush an Olympic distance race. Like at a certain point when you're running, you just gotta, like, she should have been right. Basically mm-hmm. is, is the point of what I'm saying. Um, but it's it's kind of funny on the bike you do need to stay on your left because it's dangerous um but you could shorten it just say left 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 uh but it's it can be be packed out there especially nowadays with big fields and it seems like looped courses are more common uh which you know i like looped courses i don't mind them but uh yeah gotta gotta pay attention yeah uh, I just discovered a race I'll, I'll be doing later this year has a three loop course on the run. And so it's basically three, three K's for the 10 K, but there's also a oh, wow. sprint field and a super sprint field. So I'm already preparing my, myself for a pretty chaotic and packed field out there on the run course. Yeah. It's going to be a lot. You're going to be passing a lot of people. Is that what race is that? Uh, try Cleveland. Okay. Got it. Well, that'll be good. I mean, it's fun because spectators, they can see everybody and it's good to kind of ration your effort more. Um, you know, I always tell athletes to break a race into, into thirds or fourths, depending on the distance. And then, you know, you have to increase your effort each, uh, at each checkpoint. Yep. And it it makes it sort of mentally easier to do that. If it's a looped course with multiple, multiple loops. So absolutely. Yeah. But uh yeah, well, I guess we covered a lot of stuff spontaneously on this podcast. Um, anything else that we should cover when it comes to mistakes athletes make when when racing? We we covered the main ones that that I observed. I think I think one last one that I think I wanna touch upon is not being overzealous when you're coming out of T2. Uh, I think a mm-hmm. lot of athletes, I observed a lot of athletes running way too hard at a T2 and it was up a hill. So it is essential to kind of hold back. Um, you know, you're not going to win the race in the first, uh, you know, the first hundred yards of the run. Uh, so just, you know, ease into it, get into your rhythm. Um, Cause as soon as you burn matches, you know, lactate's accumulating, hydrogen ions are accumulating, your your body has to clear that that metabolic waste and it's you're gonna slow down. So you, you, like I always say, you can't bank time. It's just you have to run to your fitness and negative split. So a big initiative this year is sort of teaching athletes, you know, working to athletes to just to negative split, to get in the mindset that at the beginning of the run, you need to be holding back. Mm-hmm. And then gradually, gradually you, you unleash and, and that's the best way to run. Um, it's the most efficient way to run. You're going to run faster that way. The exception potentially is if you are just competing, um, you know, you're a top level athlete, you need to be strategic. Like if somebody's going out 
hard, a pack is going hard and, and you think you need to go with them to feed off of their energy or, you know, if they're going to work together to put distance on you, sometimes you have to roll the dice a little bit, but 99% of the time for 99% of athletes, just racing to your fitness and being smart is the best approach. Absolutely. And that's particularly true for, for long course events. If it's a sprint or Olympic, you know, you're pretty close to an all out effort anyway. Um, but as you step up to the half distance, it's incredibly important to race within your means because as I tell every athlete, it's easy until it's not. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> That's, that is more profound than it might seems like, seem like at first. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, the truest thing I've ever said in my life. Yeah. I mean, an Ironman, it's, it's all about patience. Um, patience, 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 less so in a sprint try. And we even know that you know, it's okay to, to hammer the bike in a sprint distance. We know that oftentimes the decay and performance on the run, if it's just a 5k, isn't that, that high, but, um, yeah, Ironman 70.3 comes back to bite you. Nobody ever said at the eight mile mark of the run in the 70.3 race that they wish they went out harder earlier. <laughs> so take that to heart. Um, you know, but don't, you still want to be working. It's, it's working at the appropriately, uh, paced level. So correct intensity. Absolutely. Well, this was a good one. Thanks everyone for joining us today. Uh, when you get a chance, uh, subscribe, leave us a review and share us with your friends. Thanks guys. And feel free to, if you need to reach, reach us, you can reach us uh, on Instagram or info at workingtriathlete.com. Thank you. Have a good one. See ya.